Greetings, and welcome to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sviven. I'm your host. Office Hours Air is broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and distributed by the Stanford Daily. Office Hours Air exists to bring thinkers, leaders, writers, and conversation about their work, their life, and the ways in which their life and work have influenced one another. For many people, religion and spirituality are essential guides for life and work. And today's guest is no stranger to this great domain of human life. The Reverend Dr. Tiffany Steinwert is here today. She is the Dean for the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life here at Stanford, a post she has held since February 2019. Trained as a practical theologian, she is committed to and has written about interreligious education, chaplaincy in the university setting, the study of contemplation. And as the Dean for Religious and Spiritual Life, her responsibilities include overseeing the team of spiritual care providers, including Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist clergy, and other loving, tender-hearted practitioners of some tradition or another. And at a time like now, with a war between the State of Israel and Hamas, with thousands of civilians killed, injured, and endangered on both sides of the border, and with the devastation of the infrastructure in Gaza, Religious tensions here on campus have risen. People are hurting, weeping, feeling powerless, even hopeless. And on this one campus alone, perspectives and experiences abound. University administration mediates the urgent outcry from people on campus, including faculty and staff and students. And from alumni and donors, from the board of trustees, from the public, it is an especially difficult time to administrate a university. And at the heart of so much of the pain on campus right now, and so much of the joy and awe that has been going on, is always going on, is the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life. So this is an especially appropriate time to speak with Dean Steinwart. And a final personal note for this introduction, I mean, I came to campus in September 2019. I'll graduate in June of next year. Um, and. Of course, Dean Steinwert came in February 2019, so our time has basically coincided, which is sort of lovely. But Dean Steinwert, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Noah. It is really delightful to be here, and it is so wonderful to think of our journeys as mapping together. Yeah. I love that. I want to just begin by asking how you're doing. Hmm. That is a good question. You started the program by talking about the current context in which we are. And it is a difficult one, to say the least. I think figuring out how anyone is in these moments of crisis is hard. And on any given day, we go up and down and backwards and forwards. And so the best answer I have for that question all the time is I am here mm. and I am present. So I am here and I am present. Well, thank you. I, I want to ask you what spiritual life was like for you as an mm. undergraduate. Yeah. That's a really good question. So I did not grow up in a religious household. Actually, that's not true. My parents grew up in very religious households, but their religious households conflicted with one another. So my father grew up in a very Catholic, German Catholic family, and my mother grew up in a pan-Protestant community. And when they got married, it was a problem in the 1960s in Ohio and middle America. That was considered an interfaith marriage. And it caused a lot of difficulty for them, so much so that my parents renounced religion as a source of conflict and problems and swore that they would never raise their children in a religious household. Um, I did get baptized as a sacrifice to my father's family, so I was baptized uh, Roman Catholic when I was an infant, and my parents had to get married first before I could get baptized. And then from that moment forward, they swore that they were never going to go back because it caused such painful division in their family. And so when I was a kid, I would grow up arguing with kids on the playground about the Bible, right? I would say, look, the Bible says one thing here and another thing here, and it can't possibly say two things and be true at the same time. So it is just a bunch of bunk. I learned that word in elementary school, and I loved it. And so I said that all the time. So my favorite phrase was, the Bible is bunk. 
But the difficulty was is that um, I was really engaged from a young age in matters of social justice. I grew up on the edge of poverty. It didn't seem fair to me that people in my community didn't have the same things that I had, that people in my family didn't have the same things that I did. And so from really like age five, I remember collecting canned goods for a food drive. Um, And at some point coming to this realization that no matter how many canned goods that I collected in my little radio flyer wagon, I was never going to solve the problem of hunger. Um, And I got burnt out at the age of five. And so from five forward, I kept trying to find these different communities that wanted to do what was right and good and just in the world to help people uh, who didn't have the things that I had or um, who didn't have the opportunities that I had and um, people in my own family, right? It wasn't far off for me. It was just next door. But every group that I joined, whether it was Save the Dolphins, Save the Whales, Hands Across America, it was the 80s, those were the things that we were doing, I would get to this point where I would feel like no matter how hard we worked, we were never going to solve this problem. And when I was in high school, I discovered this group. It was called the United Methodist Fellowship, Youth Fellowship, and it was because all of my friends went there. And they were doing things that I wanted to do. They were going to West Virginia to help people build houses who didn't have homes in hollers. So in West Virginia, people live in hollers. It's Appalachia. We grew up in Upper Appalachia, up south. Um, They were helping people to find education who didn't have access to it. They were doing all of these works for social justice, and I I wanted to join, but the catch was I had to go to church to do that. So I was like, well, all right, you know, I'll go to church because I really want to do these things to make the world a better place. And in that process, I began to listen to the stories they told about this man named Jesus. And Jesus seemed to be interested in the same things that I was interested in, right? Clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving housing to the homeless, and particularly these stories that Jesus was always seeking out those who society had rejected and drawing them in closer and showering them with love. And that felt like, oh my gosh, like I, I actually want to do this. And then it turns out that there are communities of people who, who also wanted to do that. Um, and so when I went away to college, I, I kind of realized like this community that I'd been looking for, this hope of something bigger, that we could actually make the world a better place, that was real in these communities called churches, which I still wasn't sure I believed everything in the Bible. Actually, I was certain I did not believe everything in the Bible. Um, and I still kind of thought you had to in order to be Christian. And I found that out later that you actually don't. Spoiler alert. Um, so when I got to college, I didn't, I hadn't grown up religious. I'd been part of this congregation that was really invested in young people doing social action. I learned a little bit of the Bible. I didn't, I didn't really know anything. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm a Christian and I guess I'm a Methodist. And so I went to the local United Methodist congregation that was on the corner of my small town, uh, college town. And then I signed up for the Christian group on campus. I was like, this must be it. Right. And so I went and they sang some songs that were kind of like my UMYF, United Methodist Youth Fellowship, and that felt familiar. But then they started preaching and teaching things that didn't feel so familiar to my United Methodism. Um, and I thought, well, I, I guess I just didn't know, right? I, I didn't grow up Christian, so I, I started learning. I joined all of the Bible studies. I'm an in-it-to-win-it kind of person, so I did all of the Bible studies, the first-year Bible study, the, the Sunday Bible study. Um, and at the same time, I was also exploring those issues of social justice that had been so near and dear to me. So working on issues of housing insecurity and poverty and hunger, and particularly issues around women and gender and sexuality. And so I was part of what was called the BGLU, the Bisexual Gay Lesbian Union. And so I was doing all of these things all at once. I was a Sunday school teacher at my local United Methodist Church because they needed Sunday school teachers. And and why not, even though I didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, I was learning as I went with the children. Um, But one night, my first year Bible study leaders knocked on my dorm room. And I can still remember them standing there. And they said, Tiffany, we want to come talk to you because we're really concerned about you. And I had had some other things going on, and I thought, well, maybe they want to talk to me about those things. Um, but they didn't. They said, we, we know that you are part of the BGLU, and we know you are trying to be a good Christian. And here's the thing. You can't be a good Christian and be part of these organizations, particularly the group, the Bisexual Gay Lesbian Union, 
And and really, we see that you're spending a lot of time also working on issues of justice on this hunger and homelessness project. And well, we really think that that's not what Christians are called to. Christians are called to give food to people, but not actually advocate or do legislative work. Yeah, they, they said it in kind of like different ways, but basically they were worried for the state of my soul. They were convinced I was going to hell. And the reason I was going to hell was that I was choosing justice and queer people over Jesus, right? And I, I was taken aback. I didn't know any better, right? Like I had gone to a youth group that was like kind of a Christian education, but not really. They, they presupposed I actually knew all of this stuff ahead of time. And then when I got to college, I had joined this congregation that was very similar to the one that I had been in that was justice oriented. But then I was also part of this Christian fellowship on campus that was very different. And I didn't, I didn't know any better. So the next day actually was Sunday. So I walked down the hill to my local United Methodist Church and I knocked on the door of my pastor and I said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I know that you've been counting on me to teach the Sunday school class. Actually, his son was in my Sunday school class. But I had a conversation last night with my small group leaders and they told me that I could not be both Christian and work for justice. And I thought about it a lot and uh, I choose justice. So I'm very sorry. I can't be a Christian. I really liked the church. I really liked what you were doing. It meant a lot to me. But if I have to choose, I choose justice. Um, and my pastor, David Baird, looked at me and he said, oh, Tiffany, sit down. And he told me the story of Methodism. He told me the story of John and Charles Wesley, who fused together this idea of personal and social holiness, of uh, piety that is known in and through social activism, social justice. So when the Wesleys were beginning the Methodist movement, they had uh, the City Road Chapel was in the daytime. It was a school. It was a dispensary. It was a place for people to get education. It was a place for people to get free medical care and food. And only at night did it become a church. Mm. Right. And when he told the story and then he told the story that, you know, here in the United States, it was Methodists who ran the temperance movement, not because they were anti-alcohol, but because they saw the impact of the way alcoholism hurt people. Right. They were the leaders in the civil rights movement across the, the southern part of the United States and, and in the north, too. Uh, they talked about the ways in which they led the women's movement, right? And that what it meant to be Methodist was to fuse together this life of of seeking to make the world a better place. We talk about it in Christian theology as the kingdom, right? This vision of peace and justice, the commonwealth of God, right? This, in, in Judaism, you might talk about it as the shalom vision, right? Like when all is right in the world. And that our job as Christians, particularly as Methodists, is to work to make that vision come real. Right. We are to realize that vision on earth. And I was like, that's it for me. I am I am soul. I am in it here. Um, but it meant that I had to begin to think about these different varieties of Christianity. Right. There are multiple Christianities. And I had I had never even thought that was possible. But I began to grapple with that. And then it, it began to open me more and more to thinking about the varieties of religious and spiritual meaning making that happens and trying to figure out how do we find, first, how do I find the one that resonates with me and helps me to be the best version or my favorite version of myself for the world in a way that benefits the world? And then how do I help other people do that too, right? Um, so at undergraduate, my experience in of religion and undergraduate life really changed my life. It, it changed my whole life. Mm. I went to college thinking that I was supposed to be a doctor. I was a first-gen student. That's what you do, right? You become a medical doctor. And I left going to Central America to work with small base communities rooted in liberation theology. And, and somehow, God only knows ended up an ordained clergy person, which if you had asked me, at Williams College in 1992, if I was going to be clergy, I would have laughed. <laughs> it didn't seem possible, but here I am. And can, can you talk a little bit more about that journey from from finishing your undergraduate work to 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 ordination? I mean, what you what you just charted for us is is you know beginning as a child who is suspicious and critical, becoming receptive because. You see the faith tradition as a set of practices 
then finding out that some people have certain doctrinal commitments that make you and others feel excluded in, in a way that feels deeply unjust. But then a pastor comes along and says, no, it is possible to, to hold all of these things together. So does that conversation happen where you come back to, to, to feeling like faith is, is, a, is a grammar that resonates with you? Does that happen before you graduate from Williams? I, I mean, I, I, I think it's a process, and, and I think it's actually still happening, right? Mm-hmm. So faith formation is a lifetime journey, and you're catching me at a particular moment where I've had a set of experiences. It's led me to this moment, but I will tell you every single day I am learning something new about the world, about faith, about how religion functions for folks, and I experience that my own understanding of religion, spirituality, and faith continues to expand and grow. So when I graduated from college, I went off to Nicaragua in search of what it means to be kind of to live in solidarity, to live out this theology of liberation. What would it look like to actually embody a theology of liberation? And I was I was still learning what that looked like. Um, I left Central America because I realized I didn't know enough, and I if I was going to work in congregations or in churches, I probably should know more than I did about religion. And so I went to seminary not to become an ordained clergy person, but because I thought if I was going to work in communities of faith, I I ought to be able to understand those communities and have some resonance or some sensibility. I remember the first time somebody said something about Jesus, you know, returning and I laughed at them. I was like, that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. This was in seminary, probably my second year in seminary, (laughs) right? Um, That's a key doctrine for those of you listening who might not know um, that I had no idea about, right? So when I, when I came back to the United States, it really was because I, I felt so convicted that it was going to be people of faith who had this hope in something greater than them that were going to make the world a better place. And that if I wanted to do that, I needed to learn the language, the grammar, the stories. I needed to understand faith in a different way than I than I currently did. Um, and the, and what happened was, I mean, in some in some way, I think I I saw congregations and communities in a very functionalist way, right? They were the way to make the world the better place. Like if I want this vision to come true, this is this is the way to do it. And in seminary, I think I fell in love um, both with the congregations themselves, right? These communities that I got to accompany, the people who made them up. They weren't just people who were going to go out and do something better for the world. They were, they were these wonderful, complex, amazing folks who I had the privilege of accompanying through the most important parts of their life, right? And I fell in love with ritual, right? I fell in love with being able to take these symbols to move energy, to help people feel hopeful, to meet somebody in the worst place of their life and to be able to offer them something that was transformational, right? Whether it was a prayer, listening, a baptism, a burial, and it just felt like I could do no other thing than become an ordained clergy person. I did not want to. Like, I will also say, like, I did not like religious people. I thought they were hypocritical, right? I had all of the, all of all of these stereotypes, and and quite frankly, some of them are you know real. Stereotypes sometimes happen because people embody that, right? I did not want to become an ordained clergy person. But in seminary, I just fell in love with what it meant to open the world to people in a way that provided them with both a sense of hope that things could be different, but also a radical sense of being beloved. Like that was at the core of the theology that I fell in love with in seminary was that churches and congregations, communities of faith of of all sorts of different traditions could be sites of radical love for people in a way that I think oftentimes we we don't get to experience in the world. And so that I became a clergy person is a surprise to everyone, probably mostly to myself. (laughs) 
So this this process that you're describing of of change over time is is a is a is a difficult one. I mean, it's it's hard to maintain motivation when one feels discouraged at particular moments. Yeah. You talked about being burnt out as a five year old. I know, huh? What do you what do you tell people who come to you? You know, the students, faculty, staff come to you and say, you know, I feel, <laughs> I, I I feel. Tired out. I have no more gas in the tank. Yeah. I, I say you are tired. You have no more gas in the tank. My goodness, you have run such a long race. Of course you are tired. Right? You meet you meet folks exactly where they are. And then you ask, or then I ask, right? What what more do you want? What do you need? Right? And we begin to talk and, and usually when I meet folks, I'm asking questions because I think we all actually have the answers we need, right? That seems super cheesy, like it's all on you. Click your heels three times, Dorothy. But but really and truly, in terms of spirituality and contemplation, we know what we want, we know what we long for, and sometimes we just need the resources to get there. You know, what I love about working in uh, higher education is that you meet students primarily at this time period of like 18 to 25, right? I'm going to say this and then I'm going to come back and say like it's not limited to 18 or 25. But when you think about faith formation, James Fowler has what he calls the stages of faith based on Kohlberg's moral development. Um, but it's this way of thinking about how faith develops over a lifetime. And the time period between 18 and 25 is the time period where young people are beginning to question the things that they have always been told. Right? about the world, about themselves, about what they believe and what they value. And oftentimes that's about religion and spirituality. So they began to look at like, well, I grew up believing this or people told me this and then start kind of poking holes or asking questions and peeling back. Like, do I really believe that? My parents, my family believe that, but do I really believe that? And then you come to a university where you meet people who have all sorts of different beliefs. And now you're exposed to like, wow, like, I could think about the world in a radically different way. Who knew, right? And so it's this time period of, of deep deconstruction and then ultimately reconstruction. And some people reconstruct their faith and spirituality exactly as it was before. They've taken it apart. They've tested it. They've experimented with it. And they're like, yep, exactly what I believe. And other people take it apart and have a really hard time building it back again. Most people take it apart and build it back a little bit different than what it was before, right? And so my role, and I think the role of, of all offices for religious and spiritual life, is to meet folks in that moment where they say, like, I, I don't know what to do next. And then to help them, through questions, figure out what direction do they want to go in, and then begin to open those doors to them. I know you've been in my office. Uh, I arrange my books by a kind of topic. And so usually when students come in, they'll have a question and they'll say, well, I had one student come to me and she said, Dean Steinwart, you know, I was raised Catholic, uh, but I'm a woman and I don't think I can be Catholic anymore. And I was like, oh, I want to introduce you to my friend Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza and feminist theology. And did you know that feminist theology arose out of the Catholic tradition? That's where it first came, Mary Daly. I mean, it's, there's a long history, but, but at any rate, uh, Catholic women were one of the first to do feminist theology. And let me show you this, right? Um, the, the problem is, is that we all grow up with, um, uh, Rabbi uh, LePay says, she calls it this nat master narrative, or you can think about it as the water in a fishbowl that a fish swims in, right? Like we all have these stories that seem just like the way the world is. And we have no idea that there are other stories or other ways of being until either that story crashes for us, right? or we encounter a different story. And so one of the things that I think my role is able to do and the role of all of our staff in our Office for Religious and Spiritual Life is people come to us when they're experiencing that crash, when they're tired, they're gassed out, they don't know what to do. Um, and then we have the opportunity to open new possibilities for them and to accompany them in that space of hard pain, tiredness, exhaustion, sometimes hopelessness. And then offer them possibilities for a way to maybe get at least a glimmer or a glimpse of life abundant, if not put them on a path to that, right? Um, and that's a that's a real it's a real gift to be able to do. It it is a real gift, and I mean I've been very moved every time I've interacted with with the people in the Office for Religious Life. I've had the chance to interact with the new um, chaplain fellows, yeah, um, who are wonderful people. 
Um, I, I'm curious if you can say more about, I don't know, the sort of common rules of engagement um, mm-hmm. in uh, chaplaincy conducted at, the, at, 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 at a university. Because, right, I mean, you, you, there are people who have the doctrinal commitments that are inherently exclusive. The people who made faith, you know, hard for you, you know, as you described earlier. Um, I mean, it seems like that type of person would not be a good fit for a, 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 for chaplaincy. Well, you know, it actually, they are, right? So, so <laughs> okay. it, it, I mean, first of all, I think chaplaincy in higher education has to start with the presupposition that people come to lives of meaning and purpose through many different avenues. And the goal is really to make sure for that person that the avenue of meaning and purpose that they're using is life-giving for them and not, not death-dealing, right? And so for some people, those theologies, like my Bible study leader, Heather, right? I'm still in contact with her. She lives in, in L.A., and she's st- still active in her church, and she still holds those same beliefs, and we still continue to be friends and colleagues, right? Because for her, that theology is life-giving. It helps her to make sense of the world. It gives her a sense of meaning and purpose, and it helps her to think about how she wants to live her life. It's not my theology, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be. And so in higher education, what we're trying to do is to meet students where they are and to help open them to be able to experience what is a life-giving uh, spirituality or religious experience. And we think about spirituality very broadly. So when we talk about spiritual wellness, what we're talking about is that people's values, the things that they hold most dear, their beliefs, the things that they think matter most in the world, are consistent in the way that they show up in the world. So that the way they're showing up in the world is consistent with their values, and that is spiritual wellness. So for some people, those values come through religion and religious communities and particular theologies. For other people, they don't, right? But they're all engaged in the same process of spiritual wellness. So in higher education, we're looking holistically at spirituality across many different paths, avenues, ways to create meaning and purpose and to align yourself in a congruent way, right? So that you have congruence between what you believe and how you show up in the world, right? So when you begin doing spiritual care and counseling in that framework, right, it's inherently pluralistic. And you have to be open to having students, staff, faculty, advisors, religious organizations who hold different theologies, different beliefs, different values than you do. And you have to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with them because the joint project is making sure that everybody can find a way to construct a life of meaning and purpose and value and one that is life-giving for them, right? So that means that we're radically open. It doesn't mean people say to me, well, Tiffany, doesn't that mean that there's a slippery slope and everything goes, what about, and right? And and then you like, what about this? Or what about that? Like, no, 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 no. Did you hear me say life-giving, affirming, rooted in the person, right? But also connected to communities, right? So it's not that anything goes, but as a chaplain, I don't get to determine what somebody else should believe or think. I might suggest that there could be a path that might be more life-giving for them, but it's not my choice. I meet them where they are, and I help them open the doors that they want to open to find the answers and the meaning and the sense of belovedness that they long for. That's my job. I don't really get to dictate what they believe or what they should believe. I just get to lead them to a place of, of goodness, right? Hopefully. Can, can you talk about the relationship between spiritual care on campus and things like, you know, counseling and psychological services mm-hmm. and, um, you know, wellness coaching? And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an RA. I mean, there's all of these different care roles that exist. And I mean, full disclosure, right? I've been um, the beneficiary of basically all of them. Yeah. And, um, I sort of have a sense that there's something special about chaplaincy, um, but I, I would love to hear you talk about 
it's relationship and, and and how chaplains go about saying, you know, hey, this situation of yours really, you know, warrants a discussion with so-and-so. Absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, spiritual care and counseling, I should say, is not therapy. It is a form of accompaniment through life's stages. Mostly people come when their life stages are not so great. Right. People are coming because they're experiencing some inner turmoil or loss or grief or sorrow or um, uncertainty. Right. That's usually why they seek out spiritual care and counseling. But it could also be accompaniment through life's joys. Right. And in congregations, you see that through weddings and births and baptisms. Right. Um, but I would say on a college campus, mostly we're seeing students, staff and faculty who are coming to us because in these moments of life transitions, there is something difficult. And the role of spiritual care and counseling is not to get the person out of that experience, but to accompany them in and through it. So I think, Noah, when we met earlier, I had told you my favorite parable that comes from St. Julian of Norwich. I don't know if I shared that with you, but it for me is it, it tells the story of what spiritual care and counseling looks like. Right? Therapy has to do oftentimes with putting in place sets of practices and behaviors to help people out of a particular situation that they're in. Wellness coaching also. Spiritual care and counseling can involve practices and rituals, but the point is not really to rescue the person or to cure the person or to heal them. Because in spiritual care and counseling, what we think is that what we're doing is we're teaching people how to surf the waves waves of life's uncertainty, right? Like, Life is always going to be uncertain. There's always going to be loss and grief, right? That's just the nature of the world. And so unlike therapy or wellness coaching, there's not an end in sight. It's really about learning how to live with this. And so St. Julian of Norwich, she was a medieval mystic. She lost every single member of her family over two plagues and ended up living as an anchoress in the church, which meant she lived in a little cell at the edge of the church. And she had two windows, one that went into the interior of the church so where she could watch the Eucharist being offered every day and a window outside where she could give counsel to people coming and asking her for wisdom. And she herself had fallen ill with the plague and she was on her deathbed. And actually the priest had come in to give her the last rites. And as he was giving her the last rites, she had a series of visions, which she called the showings. And in that, there is this story that I think about as the the parable of the dell. It's called different things in different ways. But the story goes that there is a teacher and a student, and the teacher and the student love each other so much. Like, all they want to do is please one another. That's all they want to do. The teacher just adores the student. The student admires the teacher. They love each other more than anything else. And one day, the student decides to run off and go do something to please the teacher. But in their haste, not kind of paying attention or really of no fault of their own, they fall into this pit, into a dell. And they can't get out. And they're alone. And they're cut off from the one person they love more than anyone else, the teacher. They try to climb out. They can't. The, the sides slope down. It's cold. It's dark. They feel utterly abandoned. Now, at the same time, the teacher is, is back thinking, like, where, where is my beloved student? And so the teacher goes out and searches high and low everywhere they can to find the student. And suddenly they come and they see the student wallowing in this pit. And the first thing that the teacher does without thinking is they throw themselves headlong into the pit to be with the student. Right? Now for Julian, she's really talking about the theology of atonement. Right? She's using this parable to talk about why Jesus had to die. Right? And what she says is Jesus died not because humans were bad or sinful or did anything wrong. The student didn't do anything wrong. The world just has a lot of pits in it. And the student fell into a pit like we all fall into pits. And Jesus didn't die, right, to even get the person out of the pit, right? The parable ends with both of them in the pit. Jesus died because Jesus could not imagine, God could not imagine humanity suffering without suffering with them, right? And that's a radical kind of re-understanding of atonement theology and Christian theology. But I think for me, it maps so well onto the experience that we have in the world so often, right? Julian says we are blameless, right? For all of these pits, we are blameless. We are blameless when we are in the dell, right? 
And when I meet with students, staff, and faculty, and they bring me these places of deep sorrow and suffering, they are blameless, right? Like sometimes do we do things that increase our suffering? Yeah, of course, we're human, right? We're finite. If, if we weren't, we'd be God and that would be a bad thing, right? No, of course. But are we in the pit because we're essentially bad? Julian says no. And my experience of accompanying hundreds of students over time is also no. Students are blameless, right? And they end up in the pit. And my role as a spiritual care and caregiver is to be in the pit with them, right? Yeah. Now, the next question you're going to ask me, Noah, is the question that everybody asks me, right? So I tell this beautiful story, and, and, and it is so wonderful to think and to know that when you are in your own place of deep sorrow and loss and grief, that you are not alone, that you are accompanied, that there is something, someone that abides with you. That is so comforting. But then the next question that I know you're going to ask, because everybody asks me, is how do you get out of the pit, <laughs> right? Aren't you supposed to get me out of the pit? No. No. Right? My mentor, uh, Shelley Rambo, who wrote a book on, on trauma and the spirit and who introduced me to Julian in the first place, what she says over and over is that the point is not getting out of the pit. The point is the transformation that happens within the pit. And that's the role of spiritual care and counseling is that we accompany people through this transformation. It doesn't mean that for you to spiritually grow, you have to suffer that's just a lie, right? What it means is that we all are going to suffer. We, we just are, right? Maybe we're taking a cue from Buddhism in this way, right? Suffering just is, but we don't suffer alone. And through that suffering, we can come to know love and grace. We can know it outside of suffering too, but that there's transformation and accompaniment and a deep sense of solidarity and love that covers everyone when they're in the pit. And our goal as spiritual caregivers is to help people sense and know that presence and that love covering and accompanying them as they go through their own pits. And they'll eventually get out. We all do, right? And until they do, I'll be there. We'll be there in the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life. Yeah. You know, in a, in a future program, um, I'm going to be speaking with Bruce Feldstein, who's the director of yes. Jewish chaplaincy services at Stanford Healthcare. And, you know, before he was a chaplain, he was an emergency physician for yes. 19 years. And he has talked about and written about how, as a physician, when he told families that their loved one had died, he would step away after, you know, letting them know. But that once he became a chaplain, he was the one who, who stayed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that just presence you described, I mean, it's how you began the program when I asked how you were, you know, just saying you're here, you're present. Yeah. Um, that, that for me has, what has been so meaningful about my conversations with chaplains, um, relative to conversations with other people who are more, I don't know, action oriented. And there's yeah. a place for that. Yeah. Um, but I think that this approach is really, I mean, it's obviously counterintuitive, but it's also... I think against the grain of the dominant culture, which is so solutions oriented and, and where, you know, in, in the face of, 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 of a problem, people are, are, you know, running to try and find some type of answer. And that's not always the answer. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, so I guess that my, my question is, I mean, how, 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 how do you go about communicating this to people who are really not receptive to the idea that presence alone is enough? Yeah. Well, so so I will say, like, it, it's not that it's only presence or, mm. or presence alone is enough. Presence is powerful and it does one thing and we need other things as well. Right. So there is a, a gift of chaplaincy and spiritual care that is presence and that is wonderful and beautiful. I just read a book, a memoir by Amy Wright Glenn called Holding Space on Lost Love and Dying. And it, and it is about just this, about the role of chaplain. She herself is a, as a hospital chaplain and both a birth and death doula and talks about what it means to hold space in this way. And we are also pointing people to 
other things and other avenues and connecting them, right? So part of the work that we do in religious and spiritual life in our office is this accompaniment and this chaplaincy and the spiritual care and counseling. But we also sponsor courses that help people do the constructive work of making meaning. So we have a course program called Meeting the Moment that helps people gain tools for resilience, right? Spiritual contemplative practices to help them be resilient, real practices, right? To, to meet the moment and to make meaning. We offer a course that's an intensive that happens in January on community organizing, leadership organizing and action that helps people to be able to look at the world around them, figure out what's wrong or what they think is wrong, and then effectively organize constituents, their communities to make a change, right? Um, presence is part of it, right? Because you have to be present to know what people's needs are. But but we want to help people to live out, right? If spiritual if spiritual wellness is that values connected to action, we want people to be able to do that. And so the work of our department does a, does a whole bunch of things. So when somebody comes and says like, all you're going to do is listen to me, like, yeah, I am. And then you're going to tell me what you need next. And I can help point you in that direction. I don't often get to solve problems, but that's not my role. My role is to help people think through their problems and to know that they are never alone, that they are never alone in confronting those problems. And, and, I, and I reckon that in so many instances, it's that insight that, that the person experiences with the, the chaplain, the spiritual care provider. Um, that, oh, you know, I'm not alone. Yeah. That, that then makes it possible to, you know, keep, keep, keep on essaying, attempting to go yeah. about one's life. and Absolutely. And I mean, think about it. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but in my own life, when we experience deep loss or grief or sorrow or pain or just stress, when we have like a million things to do, it is hard to feel like anyone else is around. We can feel like we are in those dells and those pits. And you, you just need somebody to point it out to you like, oh, hey, like, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm not alone. Like there are, there are others. Right. Um, but we I think part of human experience is that we go through these periods where we do feel radically alone. Right. Dark night of the soul. And we just need people to remind us that despite how we feel and our feelings are very real, that there is always something more and someone else ready to connect to us. And sometimes we just need help getting there. I want to ask about um, the I, I, I'm going to call it the ick factor around mm. around religion. Yeah, because I mean, you you talked about experiencing that yourself. Um, it's something I have felt at various moments, and I think that is a challenge or you know an obstacle in the minds of many people on campus to go to the office for religious and spiritual life and find the the meaning that is bouncing around in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's the ick factor. There's also the woo factor, right? Particularly on a campus that's science-based, right? This idea that something exists mm. outside of our rational mind is woo and we don't want to encounter that. But I think the reality is is that religion and spirituality wield power. And wherever there is power, there is always an abuse of power. And that just is. And most of us, at some point in our life, will encounter somebody who wields power in a way that's abusive. And that is icky. Not just because we look at it and we think that's morally reprehensible or morally suboptimal, but because it harms and hurts us or it harms and hurts people we love. But just because one person abuses it doesn't mean that the enterprise itself is abusive in and of itself. Now, let's be clear. Institutions are made to um, replicate themselves and sustain themselves. And so sometimes institutions themselves become abusive, right? And they wield power in ways that are harmful and hurtful to others. But it doesn't, you don't necessarily need, this phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater, that there are insights that can still be gleaned even in those spaces where people have used those same ideas to harm others, right? And being able to find life-giving expressions of faith can be hard, particularly if in your past you have had a really harmful experience of it. Um, it is very hard to trust 
again. I do a lot of work often with students who have been harmed by particular religious communities and helping them both to heal from that harm and sometimes to reconnect to another community, sometimes just to pull themselves back together and feel whole again after what they've experienced. Um, But the reality for us at the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life, I would say that most of the students that we see would not consider themselves religious. If you ask them, are you religious? They would say no. Uh, We do have, you know, we have 30 student religious organizations that by their name are religious. It's the Stanford Associated Religions. And those students are, but by and large, those students are doing self-organizing of their religious communities and rituals. The students who are coming into our office are seeking something, and most of them don't have a particular religious tradition. And many of them are kind of like myself when I was an undergraduate, very skeptical and critical of religion um, because of some experiences that they've had. And so I think it's a, a, I don't know, a a stereotype that you have to be like super pious to go to our office. But if you come to our office on any given day, you'll see lots of different types of folks. You'll see students um, getting ready, doing ablution for Juma prayer. You'll see, you'll hear students chanting in our Hindu and sometimes our Buddhist rooms. You might see students doing yoga or mindfulness meditation who have no religious commitment at all. You might see posters around about taking down the administration. Don't I guess hope, hopefully the administration is not listening to this, but in leadership organizing and action, we create like detailed plans about how to create change at Stanford, right? Um, so all of these different things happen in our office because they're all about how do you make meaning? How do you find purpose? How do you take what you deeply believe and turn it into action in the world, right? So it could look very stereotypically pious and it could look radically different, right? And wonder like, how is this class even being taught in this space? Right. So we we see a wide variety of students across the university and you don't need to be religious. Some people think, well, do I need to be religious to do spiritual care and counseling? Absolutely not. Do not. And again, most of the students who come are like, I'm so sorry, I'm not religious, but I really have this question. Right. So you can come. Anyone is welcome. So I. One responsibility of the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life that um, might be the way in which most people interact with it, or those who don't go uh, to the office themselves definitely interact with it, are these big public events, the baccalaureate, convocation, graduation. Can you talk about what you see as the role of of these events in in university life and the role of, of... religion and spirituality in these in these moments yeah I, I think we can see it most closely in baccalaureate one because our office manages that service from beginning to end but these are threshold moments right these are liminal moments where the community is gathering to mark a particular life stage a life moment right and so the role of religion and spirituality is to help that community come together to have a shared experience of this life stage together and to mark the moment with meaning. So this liminal transition, I mean, baccalaureate happens the day before commencement. It is literally this liminal in-between, right? You finished all of your exams, you technically have graduated, but you have not yet received your diploma. It is the most liminal of liminal spaces, right? And in that time period, we get to make sense of what our Stanford journey was like. And we do it through poetry, through students speaking, through dance and through music, right? We use all of the arts to tell this story so that we have a sense of meaning about what our Stanford experience was, right? I mean, at the end of four, five, six, however years it takes to get through, right? It can feel like a whirlwind and it can be really hard to kind of make sense or ground yourself. But what we do in these rituals is to have a grounding moment. Like here we are. Right? When I pray, I always begin by narrating kind of what this is what this moment is so that we can stop and pause. Like, all right, we're here together, right? We're here, we're present. We're doing this ritual together. Right. And I do it in a way that I hope for people who are religious, it feels prayerful. And for people who are not religious, it does not feel oppressive. Um, and the idea is is to narrate a shared experience together, a story of us in this moment, so that we can move on to that next stage feeling 
a deep sense of gratitude and a sense of completedness, right? A sense of um, rootedness and like, oh, yeah, that's what this was all about. And maybe some wonder and joy thrown in as well. So you talked about your prayer practice, but can you talk more about your personal, mm-hmm. um, your 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 personal faith and, and and set of practices? Yeah, you know, I I said early on in the interview that I, I consider my faith and spirituality to be ever expanding, and in James Fowler's stages of faith, kind of that's the trajectory that as faith or spirituality grows you tend to be able to hold contradiction and paradox but you are also open more and more to a universality of practices um, in religion we talk always about this the difference between particularity and universality so there are things that are like um, in a christian tradition we would call them catholic meaning that all of the world, like a, a, a universal tradition that everything can aspire to. And then particularity being very specific practices that are different and unique across traditions. So here, all of these traditions might say um, love is important, right? But particularly what that looks like in each of the traditions looks different, right? And so I think early in my career, the particularities were really important for me. And it was really important for me to know what my particularity was and to engage in that. Um, and so my particularity early on was really kind of like a scholastic engagement with theology, right? I was reading, I was writing, I was reflecting, I was preaching, I was engaging texts and ideas. And that was the, that was the basis of my spiritual practice in many ways and really enriching. And, um, but I went very deep in a very narrow niche, (laughs) right of, of a very particular form of christian theology right but the work that i've done in higher education has really introduced me to a variety of traditions and practices that i find meaningful and that i participate in and so while i still am a united methodist ordained clergy and still participate in and um, actively practice christian Uh, traditions and practices, I also have added other traditions and practices along the way, including forms of meditation. Meta meditation is, I think, one of my favorite loving kindness meditation. It syncs very well with my own Christian theology of belovedness. Um, Thinking about pagan practices and the honoring of the earth and the seasons has become very important in different ways for me. I participate Uh, as invited in the different religious rituals that we do on our campus. And so I always attend Passover seders and I go to Yom Kippur services. And I, I am always careful that when I'm engaging in a particularity that is not my own, to do it in a way that I'm invited, that I've asked permission, is it okay if I participate in this way? And taking it knowing that it's not mine. So, um, I, I always will say I'm Christian and I practice and participate in these other forms of spirituality that give meaning, but I'm always clear that um, I don't want to appropriate or take that which isn't mine. So I always hold it at a little bit of a distance to say, I'm going to, I'm going to practice this with you and I'm going to invite you to teach me more about it because I'm pretty certain I don't know about it like you know about it. Mm. And so I think these days my my own spiritual practices look pretty eclectic and are really rooted in the communities of which I'm a part and the places into which I'm invited. And I'm always looking for new spaces and places where I can learn and experience something different because I think all humans are finite. I'm super finite. What I know about the world is so infinitesimally small that any little bit of newness that I can get from others, from community, from the cosmos, I welcome it. And of course that's a really, I mean, it can, I mean, it can be a delicate balance between, um, saying, you know, I, I take this though it is not mine. And, you know, if it's human, how can it possibly be alien to any human being? 
Yeah. I wouldn't say that I take it. I participate in it. Okay. I practice it, right? It's not it's not mine to have or to hold. Um, I once was talking to a pagan chaplain, and I said something like, oh, this goddess mine, right? And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, nobody has a goddess or a god. Like, you know, that's not how that works, right? Um, it, it's not like I take or I consume. It's that I participate in these things in ways that help to open. And what's really important to me is that I always do that from a rooted and grounded space in my Christian tradition. So you heard me say that meta meditation plays well or resonates well with my beloved theology and Christianity, right? Like I'm root, I'm deeply rooted and grounded. I'm always forever going to be Christian, right? We used to kid that the Methodist church was going to kick me out, but I'd still be Methodist even if they defrocked me, right? Um, I will always be Wesleyan. I will always be Christian. And it is only from that place of rooted groundedness about what I know about my own particularity that I can reach out and participate in others. If I was just like grabbing at a whole bunch of different things, that would that might be confusing or, un, or, or destabilizing. But if I if I participate in particularities that are not my own from my own sense of rooted and groundedness in my own particular tradition then it's expansive and not disorienting. Mm-hmm. But can you talk about the history that's involved here in, in allowing, you know, in, in the formation of offices for religious and spiritual life that are interfaith? Because my understanding is that the history is very recent, um, or, or relatively recent, to have a, an office that is, you know, expansive and, and who, you know, counts among it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... We could go back to scholastic time period and the formation of the university and think about how the university was created. And the the earliest universities were created uh, for clergy, right, to train clergy because clergy were the only people who could afford to read and have books, right? Um, And and so the university model does come up around religious institutions. Religious institutions were at the very beginning of formation of, of higher education in many different contexts. And so many schools and colleges have at the very center of their campus uh a church, mostly in the United States because of Protestant hegemony, but also you could just say Christian hegemony, you have Catholic universities as well. It's a Christian church that sits at the middle of there. And the reason that that happens, one, is because religious communities are, are shaping and forming education, yes, and founding the universities, yes, but also because of what we think of education to be, right? Education is never, should never be just the acquisition of knowledge for knowledge's sake, right? It's not teaching people how to do things or just accumulating as much um, data or skills or capability. It's always in service of something. And you also have to think about not just the education of the head, but the education of the heart, of the whole person, right? So you can gain all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't steward it in a way that is morally and ethically um, right, then what are you, what, what's happening, right? And so education has always been thought of as both head and heart, and particularly in religious communities, the, the heart part comes through religious instruction, right? So in the United States, um, and I would say in Europe, you have institutions being created by um, predominantly Christian communities. In the United States, this is this is really like long and winding. And I'm sorry about this. Um, early in early in like the 1920s, we used to think about religious pluralism as there was a famous book called Catholic, Protestant, Jew, right? So we thought like that was it in, in the United States. Even though most people lived under Christian hegemony, we Catholics were not considered Christian because of Protestant hegemony, uh, and Jews were not considered Christian because they're not Christian, right? Um, and so in the 19 from the 1920s to 1960s, interfaith looked like Catholic, Protestant, Jew. Right. My family, Catholic, Protestant, interfaith. Right. Same thing. In the 1960s, immigration changed. Um, We had racist policies in the United States about who could come to the United States. And so when those immigration policies changed, there became an influx of people from many different parts of the world. And religious pluralism began to grow in ways. People from different faith traditions were always present, um, but the numbers came in such a way that those traditions began to be um, more visible. And so it was the rise of Islamic communities and Buddhist communities and Hindu communities and Sikh and Jain communities, right? And so religious pluralism really begins to grow in the 1960s. And higher education doesn't get the memo until 1980. It's actually 1981, and the first interfaith 
chapel happens at Syracuse University, um, which I served, my first university that I served at Hendricks Chapel. And there was the Wiggins Report by Bob Wiggins, who was set to talk about what should be the future of religion at Syracuse University. There's also at the very center of campus was this iconic chapel called Hendricks Chapel. And it was Christian, but it had been created in such a way that they decided when they built it to do the classic niches in like a Greco-Roman style, but instead of putting in religious figures, they kept them empty. And the reason they kept them empty in 1930 is they wanted every person to be able to project into those niches their own religious understanding. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Right? Wow. So they did that in 1930. and But it still functioned that it still was a United Methodist, because Syracuse University is United Methodist. It was still a United Methodist clergy person that was dean. Uh, it still hosted Christian services. And so in 1981, uh, Professor Wiggins was asked to think about, like, well, what, what should a chapel look like in light of religious pluralism in the United States? And so he wrote this report and he said, look, religious and spiritual life in higher education ought not to be run by a Christian dean. And the, and the, the, the person who runs Christian services ought not to be the dean. And so they split that role. And the dean of Hendricks Chapel was no longer the Christian religious head because it made it, it created an unequal space. And then what they did is they created a series of chaplaincies from different faith traditions. And theirs is a little bit different than Stanford. But but in essence, they said we need to begin to grow and nurture these spaces. Now these spaces all always existed, right? So at Syracuse there had been a Hillel, but it had been off campus, right? There had been um, Muslim communities, but they were at the masjid down the street. Same thing at Stanford, right? Stanford. Memorial Church hosts ecumenical Christian worship services. But all throughout the history, there have been Jewish community, Muslim communities, Buddhist communities, Hindu communities, all gathering kind of at the edges. And in 1980 begins this time period where universities begin to do this work and to turn toward that. Here it happened in 1996 with uh, Bob Gregg, who was dean of the chapel. And he, he came in, 19, in the 1990s and 1996. He said, look, We've got to change how we do this. We need to become a multi-faith, interfaith center. And it's Patricia Carla Newman who's the... She is the first person. And she's she is a rabbi who is made a dean of the church, of Memorial Church. Her first title is mm. associate dean for Memorial Church, even though she was a rabbi, right? And But, you know, here's the, here's the like, funky thing about Stanford is that this actually wasn't new in practice. It was new in structure. Mm -hmm. So when Jane Stanford created the university, she wanted to make certain that the church was at the very heart, the geographic center of the university, to symbolize the importance of education, what I talked about earlier about head and heart. It was really important for her that education be, be centered on creating people who were good people, right? An education of the heart, right? She said, you can take anything else, but if you take the church, the university is worth nothing. I want nothing of this university if you take the church away, right? And at the inauguration of the church, she had Rabbi Vogelsang come. Mm. And Rabbi Vogelsang said of Mrs. Stanford that you could be Buddhist, Mahometan, he used Mahometan back then, like Victorian language, uh, Catholic, Hindu. Mrs. Stanford did not matter as long as you had something of value to say. And so from the very beginning, there was this openness to a multiplicity of religious expression, right? Part of it comes from the fact that, that Jane Stanford herself was drawn to spiritualism, which was kind of a fringish expression of Christianity at that time, because she wanted to communicate with her beloveds, her son and her husband, right? And so getting to that fringe kind of opened her to not just the fringes of Christianity, but also these other religious expressions. Now, now the problem is, is that, you know, Jane Stanford was doing this in Victorian America in a very Christian hegemonic culture. And so she created Mem Chu and said, it's for everyone. Everybody is welcome, right? Except it's super Christian. There's not a single wall that doesn't have an image of Jesus or a Christian icon or saint, right? And so for some traditions, they may be welcome, but they cannot worship there. Right? There are traditions that forbid the depiction of, of humanity, so they couldn't possibly worship there. And would you want to have Yom Kippur services with Jesus presiding? Probably not, right? And so it's this, it's this real 
tension that we live with currently today at Stanford in that the founders wanted to have this expansive, inclusive way of thinking about it. They made it non-sectarian and non-compulsory also to allow space for people who were atheist or agnostic, right? They wanted everybody. The goal was, how do you think about, I think this is the central question that I think the Stanfords were interested in, it's the way that I think about our work, is that when you come to university, you're asking yourself the question, who am I and who do I seek to become for the sake of the world? And that work is inherently spiritual work, right? That's inherently spiritual work. And that's why Memchu is at the center, right? The problem was, is that Jane lived in that fishbowl. Remember that master narrative I was talking about? Like the water she swam in was Christian hegemony. And so she didn't really notice that she was giving an all call to a space that really wasn't welcoming to everyone. And so we, since that time period, have been working to expand and shift and change structures so that that vision of being a space where everybody can ask these questions, everybody can be included, everybody can feel a sense of wonder and awe and belovedness and a connected to that which is greater than them, right? That everybody can do that regardless of the religious or non-religious tradition from which they come. And we're still in process, right? We're still dismantling and remantling, right? Isn't that the work? I said 18 to 24-year-olds were constantly deconstructing and reconstructing. And I think in higher ed, religion and religious and spiritual life, we're constantly deconstructing and reconstructing. Well, I think we'll, we'll end it there. Um, Dean Steinward, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Noah. This has been delightful. I'm just so happy to have been invited, and I really have enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. That was my interview with the Reverend Dr. Tiffany Steinwert. Dean Steinwert is the Dean of the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life here at Stanford, a post she's held since February 2019, and is the principal religious leader on campus. She's responsible for an incredible team of lovely, caring people in the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life who are available to provide spiritual care to people from around the campus community. And what a joy it was to have the chance to speak with her about her work, her life, and the relationship between her work and life. You can tune in next week to hear the next interview. You've been listening to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sviven. I'm the host. We're broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and available online as a podcast. Thanks for listening.